If you will, please join me in turning to the book of Jude. You find it easily, just go to the last book of your Bible, book of Revelation, and go left one book, the book of Jude. We're going to be almost finishing it. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through verse 23 this morning. Now, I'm convinced that there are many, many, many differences between men and women. One of those differences is that, in my estimation, you, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, in my estimation, women are just more natural mothers than men are fathers. I had a steep learning curve when I became a father. I was a nervous wreck. My wife, as cool as a cucumber. You can ask my wife this, that every time we would leave our house when we had our baby, every time we'd leave the house, I would look at her and I would say, all right, Lisa, what's the game plan? Ladies, um, here's just a little idea into your husband or into a man's brain. Life is like a football game, all right? Stick with me for a sec. Life is like a football game. We need a game plan because we don't want to get blindsided. So every time I'd leave, being a new dad, I would ask my wife, what's the plan? What's the game plan? So for instance, if we were going to our small group, I'd go, all right, Lisa, what's the game plan if the baby has a blowout? Are we passing the baby around like she's catchphrase or what are we doing here? Am I a quarterback? Am I taking the lead? What happens if the baby cries throughout the entire small group? What do we do? I actually wanted contingency plans. I wanted like, all right, Lisa, if I wink twice at you, it means we're out of here in five minutes, right? If I jiggle the purse, it means I'm warming up the car. It's not just like neurotic fathers who need game plans. I mean, we have game plans for like everything, don't we? I mean, we have financial game plans. That's what a financial planner does. We have game plans about our hobbies, our vacations. We have game plans about just about Anything, anything conceivable, we have plans, strategies. This morning I want to ask, do you have a game plan for your soul? Do you have a game plan for your spiritual life, for your walk with Jesus? I mean, life is filled with temptations, with trials, with suffering. Life is, it's not predictable. So what's your game plan to weather the storms that life is going to throw at you? This past month, we've been studying the book of Jude. Now, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes to Christians, calling them to contend for the faith. We've seen this time and time ago, time and time again, that, that false teachers had crept in secretly, they, they crept into their midst, and they were preaching and teaching false doctrine. They were encouraging licentiousness, immorality, and teaching nah, that, that, that at the end of the day, God will just forgive you. And so this letter, you could think of it, has two main objectives. One, to expose these false teachers, right? Jude wants to say, that's, that's them over there. That, that's them. Be on guard for them. They're wrong. That's his first objective. 
His second objective is to encourage these Christians that in the midst of these false teachers, to encourage them how they might contend against these false teachers. From verse 5 to verse 16, he, uh, Jude, the author, kind of turns against the, these false teachers, and he's squarely kind of teaching, preaching, uh, calling down judgment upon them. And now he turns to Christians. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, twice as Phil was reading the text, Jude calls them beloved. There's affection there. He, he's now turning his attention to the church saying, okay, beloved, this is the game plan. Jude's sort of like a life coach, better than a life coach. He's like a spiritual coach. And here's the game plan. The game plan is simple, yet it's profound. It's, it's really twofold. It's the big idea that should be behind me on the screen. If we are to contend for the faith, we need to do so by remembering God's promise and remaining in God's love. Remembering God's promise and remaining in God's love. Those are the two ideas that come up in our text. So first, go to verse 17. In verse 17, there is a command. It's, 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 a, it's a verb there. It comes right before that word beloved. It's the call and the command to remember. That's what these Christians are called to do, to remember. Now, what, what, what is it that they're to remember? Well, verse 17 tells us they are to remember a very particular prophecy. It, it was a prophecy that the that the apostles of Jesus spoke. The prophecy is that in the last time, there are going to be scoffers. Now, a scoffer is just basically someone who mocks, someone who ridicules Christians for following Christ. That's what a scoffer is. Someone who mocks and ridicules Christians for their devotion to following Christ. And he says that in these last times, in these last days, there are going to be scoffers. And these scoffers are going to follow their own ungodly passions. They're going to live in an ungodly way. So after quoting this prophecy, Jude then tells us that these scoffers, verse 19, he tells us a little bit about them. We've seen this before. This is sort of repetitive, but there's one added nuance in verse 19. These teachers cause divisions. They are worldly people, not in the sense of immoral, but in the sense of they are earthly. They are of the world. They are natural. And then the most damning, they are devoid of the spirit. These false teachers who were promoting false doctrine and false behavior they, they, they created divisions. They, they were natural of this world. And in fact, Jude says, they're not even Christians in the first place. They are devoid of the Spirit. Now, as it relates to a difference between Christians and non-Christians, there are actually a, a lot of similarities between Christians and non-Christians. 
I mean, I know a lot of really moral non-Christians. That's what, our, our morality is not what makes us different. What makes us different is the spirit. That's what makes a Christian different. That's what makes a Christian distinct. That the spirit indwells them. And in the case of these teachers, their behavior, well, it was just a sign that they, in fact, were devoid of the spirit. It wasn't just that they were kind of teaching and, oops, they, they, they were accidental heretics. No, their behavior and their teachings were such that it was proof that they, in fact, were not Christians in the first place. They were without the spirit. Now, this prophecy that, that they're to remember, it's sort of general, isn't it? Right? In the last days, in the last times, there's going to be scoffers who are going to follow their own ungodly passions. They're sort of, it's sort of general. And basically, what, what he's saying to Christians is, and these Christians back then is, don't be surprised by scoffers. Don't be surprised if you're being ridiculed for following Jesus. Far from being confused, far from uh, kind of taking, being taken off guard, you should expect it. It is, in fact, a fulfillment of a prophecy. A, prophet, a prophecy that the apostles themselves spoke of. The prophecy is that in the end days, scoffers will rise up to mock and ridicule Christians. Causing divisions, they, in fact, will not even have the spirit They're to be comforted in this reality. That false teachers merely are a sign that the end has come. Now, now where is this particular prophecy? Like, what's Jude quoting here? Well, well, it could be he's quoting Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter writes, You must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. He he could be referencing that, but, but it's not like a direct quote. And I think the reason he doesn't directly quote Peter or anyone is because lots of the apostles predicted this. I mean, I'll just point out one to you. Paul, when he's, in, uh, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he, he's, he's encouraging them. He, he's leaving Ephesus and he's encouraging them and says, okay, I'm leaving. Watch out for wolves who are going to come in your midst. And he says, they're going to teach you twisted things and lead people astray. I, I think the reason Jude is sort of general here is because there was lots of apostles who all predicted the same thing. That in the end, the end days, the last times, well, they're going to be filled with scoffers. People who ridicule Christians for their faith in Christ. And he says, I want you to remember this. That is the command. That's the controlling verb, the controlling command, the controlling imperative in this section. It's to remember. It's to remember this particular prophecy. Now, what's this end days, these last days? Well, well, the New Testament's really clear. The end actually has a beginning. And the beginning isn't back in Genesis. The beginning is at Christmas and at Easter, the, the beginning of the end happened as Jesus arrived at, 
in Bethlehem and died in Jerusalem. With the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the end has come. It's been 2,000 years roughly since then. We are in the end days. As much as those in the 300s or 400s or 1500s, we are in the end times, the last days. And his point is that because there are scoffers scoffing, it is proof that the end is coming, that we're one day closer to the end. Jews are encouraging these Christians, saying, I know these scoffers are annoying. I know they are devastating. I know that they are hurting you, making fun of you, creating divisiveness in the body, in the church. And he said, what I want you to do is look at them and remember that what they are, although they're, they're a nuisance, what they truly are, are merely a sign that the end that these are the end days. That's the point that they are to remember. You know, when Jesus came at Christmas, not everyone bowed the knee to them. When he died, not everyone bowed the knee to his authority. When the gospel uh, kind of was birthed out in Pentecost and churches were planted and people came to know faith, not everyone bowed the knee to Jesus' kingly authority. And that's what scoffing is. Scoffing is saying, I don't believe that Jesus is Lord of my life. And I don't think he should be Lord of your life either. That's what scoffing is. And so what a scoffing does is, is it, it's a sign that Jesus really did come. It's a sign that, historically speaking, Jesus is king and that they are to remember this that's the point of scoffers right you remember that that famous quote in it's a wonderful life right i don't know who said it or where it was said but that famous quote every time a bell rings an angel gets its wings well let's kind of turn that on its head Jude would tell us this morning that every time you hear a scoff, it's a reminder of the end. All right? I tried to make it rhyme, but it just didn't work, all right? <laughs> That's the point of scoffing in this world. It's a reminder that the end has come. Years ago, I was in Atlanta with a bunch of college students, and we went to a Hindu temple for evangelistic purposes. And I was talking to this Hindu man who was like the nicest guy. He was, and it was, it actually took me off guard how encouraging he was to my Christian faith. He kept on saying like, I, it's great that you follow Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus. Give your whole life to Jesus. That's fantastic. That is your path. He like affirmed my devotion to Jesus. And he in turn wanted me to affirm a different devotion in his life. Obviously I couldn't do that. But, but that really is kind of the power and allure of many Eastern religions, isn't it? Think of Hinduism, think of Buddhism, right? Basically, it's spirituality without authority. I mean, it's, it's authority that comes from within. 
It's, it's what you think is authoritative. It's, it's your path. It's, it's what you think is best. I, I think it's no wondering that uh, the fastest growing religious identity in America is I'm spiritual, not religious. You sometimes hear it in the church as well. When people say, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. It's, you know, spirituality without authority. It's, it's our commitment phobic tendencies that then connect to our relationship with Jesus. And yet biblical Christianity is actually quite different. Biblical Christianity makes authoritative claims. It makes authoritative, authoritative claims uh, as it relates to our salvation, as it relates to sex, as it relates to gender, on all of life. Christianity makes authoritative claims on our life, and it should be no wonder then that scoffing will ensue. Nothing produces scoffing faster than authority. You see it in children. You see it in any relationship. The moment you bring authority into a relationship is the moment a potential for scoffing arises. Now, don't get me wrong. Scoffing is hard. It's wrong. It's maddening. It's threatening. It was creating devastating effects in this church. It's really discouraging. But Jude wants to remind us. That is the verb there. He wants to remind us that these scoffers, the the emphasis isn't to just think about these false teachers. The emphasis here is to remember what these false teachers point to, which is they're just showing that Jesus is king and that people are pushing against his kingly authoritative rule. So if you want to contend for the faith, well, Jude says, this is what you need to put in your tool belt to remember that false teachers, even people who mock, ridicule, they're just merely signs that the the end is here. The end has come. It's the sign that their fate is sealed and your fate is sealed. Contending involves remembering. My job as a pastor, sort of my job description, it's not to cast a vision for your life. Not not, not primarily. My job is not to cast a vision for your work-life balance or cast a vision for your family or your children. That is not a primary job description of me as a pastor. My, my job description is just to help you to remember. I mean, that, that's what I do every Sunday. I open up a book. I open up God's inspired book, which is the very oracles of God, and I say, remember. I just point to who God is, what God has done, and I say, remember. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, remember who God is, what God has done. Remember his promises. That's all I do. It's sort of not rocket science. My job as a pastor isn't to fight vision or to fight for vision My job as a pastor is to fight amnesia. That's sort of the the, the dragon I want to slay each and every Sunday. 
I mean, just read the prophets or read the Old Testament. You just do a word study. The, the word remember, zakar, oh, it comes up so many times. Constantly the prophets are saying, remember, 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 remember. Now, why? Well, because sin does many things to us, but one thing sin does to us is it makes us forgetful. That's how sin works. Sin works a little bit like amnesia. It slowly but inevitably makes us forget. It, it deadens our memories about who God is, what God has done, and the promises that he has bound himself up and spoken to us about. That's why we gather every Sunday. We gather to remember. It's why we sing. We sing because singing is an important part of remembering. It's why we pray, because praying is an important way of remembering. It's why we, 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 we read scripture. If you go to 1 Corinthians, have you ever noticed communion? Paul's exhortation to do it in remembrance of me. That's why we do baptism and the Lord's Supper, to remember. And that's what preaching is. Preaching is a meeting that we have as a, as a group, as a, as a church, as a community. We have a meeting with God as we remember who he is, what he has done. This is why every Sunday you get Jesus from me. Because every Sunday you need Jesus. Every Sunday we need to remember Jesus and what he's done. Because all of us are performance-driven people and think that, oh, based on what I did last week or what I didn't do last week, my standing before God is kind of contingent upon my own obedience And so every week we need a reminder, I do, all of us, that it's Jesus' obedience, not our obedience, that keeps us in his love. This is how we contend. Contending for the faith is about reminding ourselves of the faith, which is in some ways the basic blueprint of discipleship. You want to know what discipleship is? It's really simple. Discipleship is connecting with someone else and helping them to remember. You could do this by reading a Christian book, opening up your your Bible together. It it can happen in a small group, a bigger group. It can happen as you go on a walk and just ask questions about their life. And when they talk about uh, things, you you remind them of God's faithfulness. When when they say, I just don't think God's going to show up in this area. Well, discipleship is saying, oh, but do you remember how God showed up in this area? this, This time, this time, this time? It's reminding them of who God is, what God has done. That's discipleship. Uh, If you're anything like me, this Christmas, which has been a weird Christmas, but like all Christmas, I sort of get overwhelmed by all of it, right? You got to figure out the perfect gift for like 15 people. You got to decorate. You know, you got to, if you put up the villages and then they break and then you got to super glue them back together. You got to figure out the perfect Christmas tree, right? It's just like over and over again. It's just like exhausting. And you go to bed and you're like, oh my goodness. And if you're anything like me, you can go, oh, that's what Christmas is about. It's like a, like a rat race to get to the finish. And I forget what this is all about. Jesus. And so I need people. I need these times to remind myself about what this season is really about. 
because we forget. So first, you want to contend for the faith? You got to fight memory loss. You need to remember. That's why we come to church. That's why we, we fight for relationships because we need to remember. Now, second. Second, contending doesn't just involve remembering. It involves remaining. And it's remaining in God's love. And not just that. Not not only do we contend for the faith as we ourselves remain in God's love, but but you're going to notice in a second that we help others remain in God's love and mercy as well. In verses 20 through 21, there is a a sort of controlling verb. In uh, verse 17, it was remember. In verse 21, it's keep. Keep yourself. Now, what is it that we're to keep ourselves in? God's love. It's actually really interesting. Back in verse 3, it says, we are kept for Jesus. And now here he says, okay, you are kept for Jesus. Having been kept for Jesus, now keep yourself in God's love. Which I think is a kind of a, a synonym for, now keep yourself in Jesus. Now we could kind of interpret this keeping ourselves in God two ways. Okay, Either one, we, we think of it this way. We need to keep our love for God strong. We need to keep ourselves in in loving God. Or it could mean we need to keep ourselves in God's love for us. There's ambiguity there. The text is ambiguous. I think purposefully. I think it's a false dichotomy. I think it means both. We are to keep ourselves in God's love for us and we are secondarily supposed to keep ourselves loving God. Just think of 1 John chapter 4, that great book on love. That there's also a divine order to love. That we love because God first loved us. Now, if you're anything like me, keeping ourselves in God's love, that, that sounds great. It sounds like a Hallmark card, but that's kind of, you know, abstract. How, how do you keep yourself in God's love? Jude actually tells us. Jude structures this text in such a way where he, he, he puts three phrases which answer the question of how do we do it? He, he does it grammatically, but, but the point is in verse 20 and 21, he gives us three phrases, three, three descriptions, three grammatically um, participles that help explain how we accomplish the verb. Number one, we keep ourselves in God's love by building. That's verse 20. Second, we keep ourselves in God's love by praying. Then lastly, we keep ourselves in God's love by waiting. Building, praying, waiting. That's how we keep ourselves in God's love. So let's just look at these. First, we're to keep ourselves in God's love, in verse 20, as we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Now, notice that build yourself up, it's it's in the plural, now, this is indicating that as you build yourself up, it, it, it's not a solo quest. It's actually something we have to do together. So we stay in God's love as we build each other up in God's love. We, we, we build each other up in God's love by building the faith into each other's lives. The image here is sort of like a, a, a Christian going to a work site. 
It's saying Christians, every time you gather, every time you are with other Christians, one of your jobs is to go to the workshop, go to the work site and build. There are many reasons why you come into this church on Sunday, let's say. You come to worship, maybe you come to, to feed on God's word, you come to be fed. Yeah, those are, those are reasons why we come. But one of the primary, you come to edify and to build up others. You come with spiritual hammer and nails to help others grow in the faith. To help others stay in God's love. And there's countless ways we do this, right? An encouraging uh, conversation, praying for someone, just asking them about their life, saying, hey, let's, let's go out afterwards and talk about the sermon over lunch, right? Or, or go on a walk, or hey, let, let, let's start a book um, discussion, or hey, at whatever. There are countless ways we can edify each other by, by pointing each other to the gospel of Jesus Christ, by building each other up in the faith. But I want to point out three ways in which Jude tells us to build each other up, which we actually, I don't think, talk enough about. And those are actually down in verse 22 and 23. He gives us three ways in which we edify the body. We build each other up, not just pastors, not just elders, all of us. How all of us build each other up. And he gives us three ways in which we do this down in verse 22 and 23. I'm going to read it. Jude writes, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He says, have mercy, save, and then once again, have mercy. All three have to do with building someone up. And on a basic level, I think they're kind of getting at the same truth, which is your faith is individual. You must, as an individual, make the choice to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It is individual but it is not exclusively individualistic. As, a, as let's say, a, a husband has obligations to his wife, so a Christian has obligations to other Christians. Now, as you saw in those three, uh, um, those three ways in which we build each other up, it grows in intensity. The first says that we have to have mercy on those who doubt. Now, I don't think the doubt here is like hardened doubt, like I do not believe in the resurrection. It's not that. It's the sort of doubt that arises because of our weaknesses. Like, it's those momentary conversations you have with someone that says, I, does God really love me? I, I mean, I know he does, but I just don't know. Or how, do, how can I be assured of my salvation. It's those kind of doubts. And, and what he's saying is, with those people, what we're called to do as Christians is to walk slowly, patiently with them in their doubt, to be merciful to them. Not to write them off, not to be annoyed by them, because we've, we've all had those conversations where we've walked with someone for years and years and it's just the same conversation over and over again, and you just keep thinking, I just keep beating the same drum over and over again, and I'm not getting anywhere. Well, let me just encourage you, if you find yourself in that situation where you're like, I'm just walking with this person, I just, uh, you know, they just have their doubts, and I don't even know how to express or sometimes even um, kind of alleviate their doubts, that's hard work. But 
you know, by divine inspiration of June. That's divine work. That's important work. I mean, th- there are many days in which when doubts arise in someone's life, and I'm like, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I-, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. There's lots of occasions like that. And, in- and I'll give you my, what I do. I either give them the Bible or Jesus. Or I pray for them, right? And I keep banging that drum because that's ultimately what I think they need. They need Jesus. They need the king of mercy. And they need me to harness that merciful God and to be merciful with them. So so don't be discouraged, right? I mean, I, I, I I was a mess. I was an idiot for years. And I just think of the, 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 the older men who just walked with me. And I'm so grateful for them. They could have gone like, done with that guy. But they didn't. They were patient and merciful. And I'm so grateful. So th- that's the first. Be merciful on those who doubt. But then second, it says, save others from the fire. Sin destroys And sometimes we'll see a brother or sister sinning and it's not a time to pray for them. It's a time to confront them. Right? Like like a firefighter who runs into the flames. There are sometimes occasions in which as it relates to our brothers and sisters, we need to actually run into the flames ourselves and to snatch them out because sin is creating devastating effects in their lives. Love sometimes confronts. Now, maybe you think, oh, Stephen, you're a pastor. You love confrontation. I hate it, okay? Let's just get that on the table. I don't like confrontation. I'm a third born, which means I'm a peacemaker by heart, okay? I love those win-win situations. But life is filled with confrontation. And what Jude is saying is that there are some Times in my life and in others where we are sinning and we're so maybe self-deceived into our sinning. We don't see it. We don't see how serious this is that we need a brother or sister to snatch us out of it, to kind of throw water on us, to point out our sin and to say, there's a way out of this. Now, any confrontation you have, there's risk involved, isn't it? You risk the relationship. So let me just encourage you, if you're walking with a brother and sister and you're seeing them in sin and you're like, I've just been praying, I really think I'm supposed to pursue this person and point out their sin, here's my encouragement to you. Do so carefully. Do so humbly. Don't don't start the conversation with accusation. Start with a humble posture, affirming the relationship, affirming your love for them. And then as you point out the sin, Talk about repentance. And I think often we don't know what repentance looks like in a particular situation. And so think about before the conversation, what would repentance look like for this brother or sister? Like, how would you know if they have repented of this sin? And then realize that you can't do it alone. So often we need other brothers or sisters. And sometimes the most loving thing to say is, hey, let's go talk to a pastor or elder. I'll walk with you. Let's go together and talk because that's what pastors and elders want to do. They, they want to help you. 
So, so one way we, we build each other up is by being merciful to each other as we doubt. Second, when, when we're either caught in sin or when we're deceived by sin, to snatch each other out. And then lastly, what one way we do this is, he says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, this reference to the garment stained by the flesh, it's a reference to Old Testament purity. Right? So, so sometimes someone would defile themselves, and in so defiling themselves and their soul, they defiled their garment. And so what would you do with that garment? Well, you'd have to burn it or clean it. So basically, Jude is saying, You've got, you got to be really careful because sometimes when you're seeking to restore someone, sometimes when you're seeking to help someone in their sin, you can so empathize with them that slowly but inevitably you begin to rationalize your own similar sin. Well, if they do it, it's might not, it must not be a big deal. And so he says, but Brothers and sisters, you've got to be careful. But Paul writes this, which is in Galatians, in a very similar way. He says, brothers, sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch out, or you might also be tempted. It's the same idea. I mean, once or twice a year growing up, we would go to Billings, Montana. And if you've ever been to Billings, they have these rim rocks. They're really pretty. You could climb on them. I always wanted to climb on them as a kid. My mom would always say, you got to watch out. There's rattlesnakes up there. Right? Something important, something fun like climbing has dangers involved. Same thing in restoring a brother or sister. There's some dangers. We got to be careful. So we're to be merciful. We're to uh, be, help them in their doubts. We're to save some by pointing out their sin. And we're to be careful as we do this. That, that's how we build each other up. And, and in many ways, verses 22 and 23, it's really talking about discipline. Right? Have you ever noticed that the idea of discipleship, discipline is involved in discipleship? Uh, a few years ago, I was at a conference and uh, a pastor uh, a professor said, hey, I, I want you to raise your hand if a church has ever exercised church discipline on you, right? There's like two, three, four hundred people in this room. No one raised their hand, you know. Well, he, the, the speaker rose his hand. He goes, I've had church discipline on me. He said, actually, this past week, he said, my wife came up to me and said, um, honey, you, you spoke a harsh word in your anger with your son. He said, my, my wife pointed out my sin, confronted me in my sin, and called me to repentance. That's church discipline. There, there are two types of church discipline. One is corrective, which is like the intense kind. That's the, the Matthew 18 type, right? That, that's the kind that eventually, if there's no repentance, it leads to excommunication. But there's also just formative discipline, which is the process of discipleship in which we, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the help of a brother or sister, 
our sin is exposed and we cling to Jesus and his sufficient grace, turning from our sin, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's like a daily, weekly occurrence, is it not? And that's what he's saying. We build each other up as we create a culture of discipleship in a church. That's how we build ourselves up in God's love. So that's the first. We keep ourselves in God's love through building each other up. Now, second. These will go faster. We keep ourselves in God's love through prayer. Verse 20. It specifically says praying in the Spirit. Now, the battle to contend against these false teachers, as you probably talked to a false teacher or anyone, right? you, you can't win by argument. You can't win by logic. You can't reason with these people sometimes. It's a spiritual fight. And so Jude says, you want to kind of contend? You want to stay in God's love by contending against these false teachers? You need to pray in the Spirit. Now, uh, I don't think this is talking about tongues. Okay, Could be. I'm just not convinced. I also don't think that this is talking about like a super, super intense type of prayer. Like there's, there's prayer and then there's praying in the Spirit. I also don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on is a contrast, right? These false teachers, we learned back in verse 19, they are devoid of the Spirit. Well, Christian, he's calling them to pray in the Spirit, to pray as Spirit ones. These false uh, kind of believers, well, they were just dependent upon themselves, That's what their authority. But prayer is always a a prayer of dependence. Prayer is a prophetic call to say, I am dependent upon God. I mean, prayer basically is saying, I'm not God. And I need God in in various situations. Now, prayer isn't very flashy. Right? Prayer isn't very flashy. But it's essential. And if you want to stay in God's love, if you want to stoke your love for God and stay in God's love for you, prayer is your ticket. There's, there's no easy way around it. Prayer is the ticket. Uh, the, the, you all know that famous Paul saying where he, he encourages the Christians in the church of Ephesus to um, um, keep themselves in the breadth and width and height and depth of God's love, right? You, you, you all know that, that famous. Well, I would encourage you, you can do this after. Swim up three verses from that and you'll realize that Paul is not encouraging these Christians. He's praying for these Christians. He says, I bend my knee before the Father and then he prays that they would be kept in God's love, that they would know the depth of his love for them. If you want to know God's love for you, if you want to be kept in God's love, if you want to understand in a deeper, more profound, more intimate way God's love, prayer is the means. Prayer is the ministry to accomplish that. You do that privately. Do that corporately. Do that by yourself in the morning or as you go to bed or on your lunch break. Do that with a prayer buddy. As Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. 
as the Puritans would often say, pray until you start praying. And you know what that means, right? It takes a while to get into prayer, right? Pray until you start praying. And if you are discouraged in your prayer life, if, you're, if it's feeling sort of dull, grab someone. Grab someone and pray with them. I am so encouraged when I pray with others, when I hear their prayers. In many ways, one of the most encouraging things that encourages my prayer life is when I get a note or someone pulls me aside and says, I've been praying for you and your family. Oh my goodness, that does something to me. That not just encourages me, but it encourages my prayer life. Keep yourself in God's love, Jude would say, through the ministry of prayer. Now third, down in verse 21. He says, keep yourself in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the third way we keep ourselves in God's love. It's the idea of expectation. It's the idea of hope. I assume your family is similar to my family. On Christmas morning, my kids are excited. They've been waiting. They've been seeing Christmas presents. And they are expecting loot. You know, the last month has been building this expectation for them. And finally, on Christmas morning, they get to capitalize on that expectation. And Judah's saying, do you do that about your salvation? Do, do you do that about eternal life? Do you stoke that expectation that Jesus Christ is going to return and you will have eternal life with him? Do you remind yourselves of heaven? I mean, just think about all the things that, all the images that just kind of roam around our minds. Good, bad, and boring, right? Just, just images, images. And just think about maybe some, some of the bad images, like bitterness or frustration or lusts of very kind that just pop up in your mind. You want to know how you fight those images? You don't fight them by meditating on just a blank slate, detachment. You fight those images with other images. It's hard to lust when you think of the cross of Christ. Meditate on heaven. That is one of the greatest ways in which we can fight for holiness. Staying in God's love is to fill our minds with God. Just stoking our expectations for the life to come. You know, we love, and our love has limits, right? I'll, I'll love you, but, but, but there's a limit on my love. And then I just, I just can't do it anymore. There's no limit on God's love. It's not contingent upon us. Jesus will love to the end. The end being his return. He will love to the end. His love is without qualifications. It is without our merit. He loves to the end. Do you think about that love? How that love will sustain you? 
how that love is the vehicle that'll get you to persevere in whatever storms may fall upon you? Do you fill your heart and stoke your imagination with what heaven is going to be like? Do you just read the end of the book of Revelation constantly because you just you want that heavenly vision of what that heavenly Zion is going to be where there's no tears, no weeping, just joy forevermore. Every time you take that, that Christmas bite of, of good food, do you let that stoke your imagination for what the world to come is going to be like? That's what Jude says. If you want to stay in God's love, you got to meditate on God's love. you got to meditate on God's love on the cross and God's love in heaven for us, our destiny. Constantly filling our minds with it. Now that can look like many things. There are people in my life who do this for me who just constantly point me back to Jesus and stoke my, 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 my hopes and imaginations for Jesus. But it also takes effort within us. That with our, when our mind goes there, we need to fight and keep ourselves in God's love by meditating on eternal life. The hope of Jesus Christ and his return when all will be well. Now that's the game plan. I told you it's sort of a simple game plan, but it's a pretty profound game plan. If you want to be kept in God's love, if you want to contend against false teachers, it takes two things, reminding and remaining. Remember God and all his promises and remain in God's love. And as you do that, you will contend. You will persevere. That's my prayer for you guys all this season. And I'm going to pray in light of that right now. My prayer is that you would remember that Christmas is about Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, died in Jerusalem. Christmas is about stoking our longing for his return. Let's pray. God, God we, we, are, we live in the age of distraction. There's so many things that distract us. And so we pray, Lord, that even this morning, we would remember your son. We would remember the glory of your son in a manger. We, we pray that we would remember that we are not God. That, that authority doesn't reside within. It, it resides in you. All authority on heaven and earth you gave to your son. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would remain in your love. That we would run to your love. That, that we would encourage each other to be kept in your love. We pray, Lord, that you would give us joy in this season. And we pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen.